12 o'clock. Welcome. Good to see you guys. Wow. There's so many of you at 12. Good for you. Thanks for coming. That's awesome. James, congratulations, man. That's great. That's great. Um, thanks, for, thanks for being here. Sorry I wasn't here last week. I was out with Chattanooga celebrating their four-year anniversary, if you can believe that. It's incredible, man. Um, so over 600 people worshiping with us. They had a block party at night. You know, we do a block party outside, like on the block. They have such a big lobby that they do a block party in their lobby. That's how big it is. It's crazy. Um, but it was fascinating while we were out there. I don't know if it was fascinating. It was interesting when we were out there. Um, on Friday night, I get a call from the leadership team chair, Brooks, um, and he said, hey, as you know, we are in, the building is in bankruptcy. The organization that owns the building is in bankruptcy, and um, an offer has been made on this building, $3.625 million. I was like, oh, wow. Now, the way that the lease is written is that if anyone, um, if anyone offers something on the building, we get right of first refusal. That means we get the right within two weeks to say whether or not we're going to match that offer and purchase the building. And so, as you can imagine, they've, they've already put together some some fundraising. They've been doing this because they're like, hey, if it's not this building, it'll be another building. Um, anyway, he said, so what should we do? So we hadn't talked to the conference yet at that point. So we didn't want to make any promises on the conference behalf because as you know, like conferences will often fund or, or give loans to churches so they can purchase their, their buildings. So anyway, I just got up the day, the next day um, during church and said, hey, here's the deal. This is the situation. We have, um, we have a certain amount of money in the bank. I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, we need $2 million in hand because by then we had spoken to the conference. We need $2 million in hand. If we get $2 million in hand, that's not pledges, that's in hand, the conference will give us $300,000 and finance the other $1.3 million right, at a very low rate, so it's a really good deal. The building is right now going for about, it's about 35,000 square feet, I think. It's going for about 60 cents on the dollar, so it's an incredible purchase, actually. And so we just put it out there, and the language that I used to Chattanooga was like, listen, this is not a plead for money. At this point, it's just a prayer. Two million dollars is a heavy lift in two weeks. Um, so in the last six days, they've raised 1.2 million dollars. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. They just raised another another 90000 in church today. Um, so we're getting closer to that point. But if you're on our social media, you know that we've been, we've been as a sisterhood of churches saying, hey, if we can help Chattanooga out, we'd love to do that. Now, we need, you know, our, our, all our local churches and all the different areas, we need them to be financed and all that sort of thing. But if... God has placed on your heart to give towards Chattanooga. This week is the week it needs to happen because like I said, it's two weeks that we have to have this money in hand to be able to move forward with the conference in, in this particular situation. So, um, and you may think like, oh yeah, I could do an extra 25, I could do an extra $50 this week. Um, but what's that really gonna do in the face of $2 million? And the answer to that is it gets us 25 or $50 closer. Every single dime, every Every single penny counts. And so if that's something that you like to, and just so you know, if you give that money and they don't reach that $2 million, what they will do is they'll put that money, unless you request it back, I suppose, but I, I wouldn't do that. Um, uh, I don't know, that's weird. But, but um, and if it's a significant gift, okay. Um, but that will go into a building fund to eventually purchase a building because on Thursday, they met with 
the church that has put the bid in, uh, the offer in to buy the building. Because in their bid, there's, I believe, a contingency that we would be the renters there because um, there's some income already coming into that church. Great people believe in expanding the kingdom of God. It's great. But definitely not the same kind of church um, that that we are. So some of the changes they talked about making would really hurt the experience of church that we're able to give, um, like the sound system and the lighting and all, all that they're going to change. Um, some things they're going to do with a baptistry. It became pretty clear in the meeting with them that probably not a great partnership. Um, and you never know, God may change that, but we feel like, okay, if this, if they do end up purchasing the building, our longevity in this place is probably not great. And so, um, so that's the ask today. If you can do anything, we want you to go to our, you can go to our website. Um, and on their page is a link to Avenus Giving. And this is what we're going to ask you to do. You can give through our website, certainly, but we don't have a, we don't have a line item for that. If you go to Avenus Giving and give there, two things are good. Obviously, there's a line item that can go right to their building project. The second thing is that um, there's no fee taken out. If you give through our website, there's a fee taken out um, by the organization that we work with. If you go directly to Avenus Giving, then that money is 100% coming through the Avenus Giving platform. So that's kind of the ask today. It's um, we're sisterhood of churches for a reason. So if we can help, I think we should. And anyway, um, I know it's weird that we're in a series on ge generosity and it's called This Generous Life and then we're making all these big asks. It's just, we put this together a year ago and all this is the same. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about the widow of Zarephath today. Um, a, a story you all know. Maybe. I don't know. We all know it. We actually all do know it. When we get into it, you'll understand it. But I want to give you the background of it, right? This is a, the story of Elijah. Elijah's about to show up in a pretty big way. And what was going on at the time is that there was this political marriage between Ahab and Jezebel. And when Jezebel comes on the scene in this political marriage, all of a sudden you've got this massive um, kind of us versus them situation happening with those who believe in Baal and those who believe in Yahweh. Sometimes they call it Baal, but Baal, Baal, whatever. Um, and those who believe in Yahweh. In fact, there's a lot of religious tension happening in the world. At one point, there's 400 Baal priests, 400 Asheroth priests, and 400 Yahweh priests. But out of all of these, Elijah is the one who sticks out the most, that we know the most about. Now, just a little bit about these gods. Baal is a fertility god who answers to Mot, who is the god of death. Yahweh is a living God. So we've got Baal, death, essentially, Yahweh, living God. And now what happens is Elijah shows up on the scene. I'll be reading from 1 Kings 17, verse 1. I read from the New Living Translation. It begins like this. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Now this is important. Life versus death. Israel lives. The God I serve. There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word, right? So the prophet kind of barges into the story unannounced. He's an unknown quantity from a town that scholars can't really even identify. They can't locate it anymore. Nobody knows where Tishbe is. But his name declares his theological mission for his name means Yahweh is my God. Right? So quite dramatically, he gets there and he shows up and he, he claims that there will be no rain until he says so. But he bases this declaration on the fact that God lives 
and on the notion that he serves a living God, which means his prayers will be heard. And by the way, when we talk about Elijah, we often think about that story of him on Mount Carmel with a fire coming down and burning up the, the sacrifice. That was the question. Is Baal listening to you? Is he alive? Is he quiet? And you'll remember all the things that Elijah said, right? Like, is he asleep? Is he on vacation? Is he not? It's, it's a dead God versus a living God. But I'm going to stop here and ask a question because a drought's about to happen. And when a drought happens, um, you end up with a lack. We understand this in Southern California, right? We all, I'm going to ask this question, has there ever been a drought in your life? And you're like, now, yes, we're living through it. I understand that. But I'm even talking about more like a metaphorical drought. Is there a time when things are lean? Maybe it's financially. Maybe it's with purpose. Maybe it's spiritually. Maybe it's relationally. This time when we sense a lack in our lives, Right? When you feel like you're not really living in the abundance of God anymore and you wonder where these showers of blessings everyone's talking about is, right? We all go through these seasons in our lives, whether it's professionally, whether it's relationally, whether it's spiritually, sometimes financially. So how do you respond to a drought like that in your life? When you can't find your purpose anymore and you feel like you're just doing what you're doing and you don't know why you're doing it. Because how you respond to a drought often determines how long you will be in that drought. Do we respond, do we respond with faith, with generosity, or do we, re, re, do we respond with stubbornness, with anger, with frustration? Remember, Israel was in the desert for a really long time, and their behavior kept them there longer than they ever imagined to be. The problem is when we're sensing a lack in our lives, when we're living from this, you know, kind of not enough situation for whatever it may be, God is often quiet. And the, and the problem is we think that God's silence equals his absence, but God's silence does not equal his absence. Whether, you know, in a time of drought, spiritual or otherwise, we think that his silence means he abandoned us, but it's not the case. Sometimes like a teacher while you're taking a test, God silences for us to grow, to learn, to lean into faith a little bit more. And a drought is a time where you see people's real values. Because in a time of need or drought, people respond in ways they may not have otherwise. Not all of us can be like Paul in the book of Philippians, right? Where Paul says, I found the secret to being content, whether in plenty or in want, whether well-fed or hungry, whether clothed or naked, I can do all things in him who strengthened me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. But we can't all live that way. We don't all live that way. Sometimes our values show up when we're in a drought. We'll get to that a little bit later. But the drought in today's story was given as a lesson. So then the Lord says to Elijah, after he's made this declaration to King Ahab, he says, listen, go east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. By the way, this is out of the reach of Ahab, right? He's like, give the word and then get out. Because sometimes as a preacher, that's what you need to do. I go preach places sometimes and I, I say what God has put on my heart and I look at the audience and I think I will be leaving the moment this is done. They are not happy with what I'm saying. I always, you know, it's God's fault, not mine, but sometimes you got to give hard words, right? So, so he says, get out, get far enough away that Ahab can't really take, get, get a hold of you anymore. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I've commanded them to bring you food. So we know God is a God of resources. If you can't find food, ravens will bring it to them. 
Maybe that means we shouldn't worry so much about God's provision like we do in the time of lack that we live in at times. Maybe we need to believe that God can send a raven, whatever that looks like in our lives. I mean, the logistics of a raven is pretty interesting. And we'll get to that in a second as well. So Elijah did as the Lord told him. He camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. And ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, many of us have been reading the Bible for a really long time. Um, so this doesn't like really bother us. But let's break this down for a moment, literally, shall we? I think I'd be okay with a bird bringing me some bread. Because like he drops the bread in front of me. I'm like, oh, great, thank you. I take a little piece of bread off. Take the one that was in his mouth. That's disgusting. Take it out and put it down. Thank you, Mr. Raven. Joe the Raven. I don't know what his name is, but thank you. I appreciate that. Meat, on the other hand, not so sure I'm okay with meat coming in a raven's mouth. The funny part is we, we get to these stories and then we fly past these pieces like they're just normal. In fact, the first time I ever read this story, and some of you may, may resonate with me on this, um, there was this series of books that you got when you were growing up as an Avenist called um, like Your Bible Story, My Bible Story. And it had a red spine with yellow writing. Do you guys remember that? I, this is the, the first time I heard this story, it was that. And so I, even when I'm telling this story, that's the, I'm thinking, you know, I remember there was this like curve in the brook and he's like this and the ravens are coming and just dropping things in his hand like, like the best DoorDash delivery guy you've ever had. <laughs> right? That's weird. This weird. It's weird. But it does show us God's provision. Right? It shows us that God is taking care. Right? It's confirmation. He, nothing that he needs has been withheld. Right? And this is a point that we need to remember later on in this story. But it did come to a point, you know, after a while, the brook dried up and there was no rainfall anywhere. So far, God's miraculous powers have benefited the prophet. And this story is actually one of three stories, a series of three stories talking about the provision of God in times of need and lack. Because then the Lord says to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. Some fascinating things about Zarephath, just so you know. It's located in Phoenicia, in the very heart of Baalism. Here Yahweh will defeat Baal in his own territory. Here God's people will fare better than Baal's people as well. Since Baal worshipers explained the drought as a sign that Baal was dead, he could not help the widow and her son or anyone else. In the absence of Baal, who lies impotent, right, in some netherworld somewhere, Yahweh steps in to assist this widow and this orphan and this prophet. And it's done in the heartland of Baal. In Phoenicia, this is where Jezebel is from. So there's a lot of things happening in the story on a lot of levels. There's a political statement. There's a, a statement about God being alive, not dead. There's also a statement about generosity and faith. So what does he do? He goes to Zarephath, and as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? 
there's no water. There's no water, right? Will you bring me some water in a cup? There's just no water. But Middle Eastern hospitality, they're going to give you something. So as she was going to get it, he then says, hey, bring me a bite of bread too. This is pushing it too far. No, it's pushing it too far. She's like, she whips around and she's like, hey, I swear by the Lord, your God, that I don't have a single piece of bread in my house. And in fact, I only have a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. Let's break that down for a moment. Again, going back to, to my Bible story. The woman looked fine. No, she looked fine. She looked like she was just gathering sticks. So I guess in my head, I was always like, oh, she was okay, and now she's running out of food, and so she's going to eat this last meal. But that's all I got, because I'm not even sure it said we're going to eat this and die in my story hour. Um, but we need to think about this a little bit differently. This was not, I've been eating three square meals, and now I had, I'm going to have breakfast, but I'm not going to have lunch. Because that's not like, you're not like, hey, I'm going to miss lunch, in and out's closed, I'm going to die, right? Chances are she was a good mom. Chances are this is a woman who has been rationing out her food for a significant amount of time. This is a woman who is in extreme hunger, right? This is a woman who has not eaten, knowing that when she doesn't eat, when this last meal is done, the next move is not to find or scavenge for something else. The next move is that she's going to be dead, and we also don't think about this story in the fact that her son was probably with her. So maybe he's five, six years old. Scripture doesn't say how old he was. But maybe he's with her and he hears her say, like, we're going to die. Things are bad. Things are really bad. The lack is real. It's not just the end. It's not the beginning of the end. It is the end of the end for her. I mean, I... Have things ever been so bad that you just assume there's no way out? Like you just accept your fate. Like this is it. I guess I'm going to die now. We don't live like that. Even when we have significant financial lack, by and large, we're able to get some sort of food. It may not be the best food. It may be cheap food. It may be food given away by a food pantry. There was no food in the land at all. There was no water in the land at all. And so when we relate to this story of lack and generosity, we can't really get into the widow's situation. As much as we want to, as much as we may try and understand it, we can't really get there because we don't live that way. We can understand lack when it comes to relationships because we feel that alone. We can understand lack in mental health because we feel so broken and anxious and troubled. We can certainly sense that we're lack. Our finances are getting pretty low. It's going to be hard to pay rent. But this woman had nothing. And Elijah says to her, listen, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what I've said. But make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. This seems almost selfish. Take care of me first, says Elijah. Was this a test? Maybe. It wasn't a test of her hospitality. At this point, it becomes a test of faith. 
You know, when we encounter tithe in Scripture, right, it's called the first fruits. We're to give the first fruits of our increase, it says in Scripture, right? So what God is blessing you with, give back to God and do it first. And that's great, right? That's, there's no problem with that. But this is not giving from your increase. This is giving from your lack, from your nothing, from the stuff you don't have. Right? He goes on. He says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. Now, this woman had a choice to make. Right? Give the very last of what she had and give it away first. This very little to Elijah. Or she could refuse and she could protect her family just for one more meal. What would you have done? I mean, what would you have done? Because the question isn't, do I have this food here? The question is, do you trust God to make food tomorrow? And it's easy for us to go, oh, I would have been faithful. Really? I don't know. Because from our lack, that's when we really, that's when people's real values show up. Right? I made this statement before and I said I would come back around. I'm circling back around now. When we have lack in our lives, our real values show up. And then you know what? It doesn't even have to be real lack. It can be perceived lack. You want to know the absolute most powerful example of perceived lack and real value showing up? I'm not going to show you a video. I could show you hundreds of videos of what happens when people perceive a lack. And the lack usually looks like this on a Black Friday sale. I perceive that I lack a 75-inch TV for $499. And I need to fill that lack in my life. And I will beat people with that TV to get that TV. Right? Real value systems show up on Black Friday sales. I pray to God that these things are a thing of the past. That, I mean, right now, it feels like there's been Black Friday sales for the last three weeks. So it feels like maybe, maybe stores are like, don't come here. We have, we, we have we've added to the grossness, right? People grabbing for whatever they can get. It's the height of selfishness, the height of a gross consumerism that we somehow have espoused for too long. By the way, I, I, I preached a sermon on Wednesday like I do, and uh, a woman in Chattanooga was at the first service, and I said that line, the height of a gross consumerism that we have somehow espoused for too long, and she heard it as, I've had my spouse for too long. <laughs> That's how she heard it. And um, so apparently she stayed for the second service to hear it again. And then she texted me and she said, okay, just a moment of clarity here. I thought you said you'd had your spouse for too long and I really like your wife. I think she's great. I don't know why you would say that. So I stayed for the second service and now I understand that you were talking about consumerism and the fact that we have espoused it for too long. Thank you for not getting rid of your wife. <laughs> so apparently I need to enunciate a little more when I preach on Wednesdays. But this widow had a choice to make, right? She could either trust Elijah and what he was saying about God providing and God's generosity, or she could trust in her own instincts and save all that she had for herself and her son. By the way, that's a great instinct to take care of your family, to provide. That's not a bad instinct. But God was asking her to go beyond that instinct and have faith in a way that was not instinctual, right? To be generous when there was nothing to be generous with, really, to give from her lack, not to give from her abundance. 
right? It's a great instinct to protect our families. We should have that to provide. But every once in a while, we're asked to live beyond just our instincts. And here's where I think it becomes frustrating for me reading the scripture. Because what we don't know is the process of her decision. We don't know how long it took, right? All it says in the next text is, so she did as Elijah said, but it had to be more than that. Can you imagine walking back to your house with this guy following you? Like your son right there crying, knowing he's barely going to get anything for his last meal. And you saying, should I really trust this guy? I don't even know who this guy is. He's been eating from ravens. He might have some sort of weird raven disease. She had to decide whether or not she's going to follow God. And then she did. But I think that decision was harder than just, so she did as Elijah said. But you know the outcome. It's right here too. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for days and days. Because God kind of elongated what she had, right? There was always enough flour. But I, you've heard me say this before, and I think it's worth mentioning again. In his book, Financial Peace, Dave Ramsey says, the miracle of tithe is not that a dollar becomes a dollar fifty. The miracle of tithe is that you have given to God what God has asked for and your heart is content. So those things that put a desire on your heart, that lust that you have for whether it's consumer things or other things, to, you know, not just a car, but a nicer car, not just a house, but a nicer house, not just food, but like super nice food. Um, those things are abated in your heart when you've put your money where God has asked you to put your money. That's really the miracle of tithe. But in this story, there is this miracle, right? That there was always enough flour, there was always enough olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. This was definitely a miracle. And it feels like we don't get those too often anymore. But we often don't need them. You know, the miracle of the abundance in which we live is a miracle. The fact that I wake up in the morning and don't worry about where food is coming from, that is a miracle. The majority of the world doesn't live that way. And we do. Thank God for it, but don't be stingy with it. We don't often have to give from our lack. And those gifts are sometimes small. She gives a tiny little bit of flour and a tiny little bit of oil in the form of bread. And God elongates that. There's one thing that I think is important to mention here, and we're going to really dive into it next week, but the quantity of the gift does not determine its value. Do you understand that? The quantity of the gift does not determine its value. When we give from our abundance, that's tithe. When we give from our lack, that's a miracle. That's you willing to depend on God for his provision. That's your willingness to lean into the fact that God has been generous with us and God has been faithful to us. When you give from your abundance, it is tithe. When you give from your lack, you are living a miracle. Giving from what you barely have. It's a big deal. And listen, if you're new here, and even if you're not new here, and you're anything like me, you get real cynical when a pastor gets up and says, hey, we're going to talk about generosity because you know what's coming. I get that. But I want you to understand these eight weeks that we're spending on this idea of the generous life and God being this generous God is not about what you're going to give. You guys have been amazing with that. 
here at Redlands Campus, online, on all our campuses, you don't, you don't need to give more. This series is about how our hearts are shaped in generosity and how we cultivate a culture of generosity, a generosity of spirit, a generosity of hope, a generosity of love, a generosity of finances and a generosity of time and talents, all those things. But it's about how our hearts are shaped to be generous hearts, not stingy hearts. And the reason why this is important, I believe, is that scripture is just full of, first of all, stories of God being unreasonably generous with us. God's heart is formed in a generous way. And then it's also filled with stories of people being willing to give from their lack, being willing to give what they almost don't have in order to honor, us, the, gener honor the generosity that God has given to them. So this is not about what you're going to give at the end of this series. This is about how your heart is being formed and how you're allowing God's generosity to change your heart into something that doesn't just clamp shut and hold in all those gifts that God has given you, but that heart that opens up wide and overflows all those beautiful things that God continually gives you in life day after day, minute after minute, second after second. That's what this series is about. So don't come here thinking, oh, Pastor Tim's going to ask us again. Yeah, we've got a lot of needs. Everybody does. I want you to be a different person at the end of this. A person who's not afraid to give from your lack and understands, of course, I would give from my abundance because why wouldn't I? That abundance is me just being steward of what God has given me anyway. So yeah, we've got a question at the end, which is what are you giving today? When we give from our abundance, it's tithe and it's beautiful. When we give from our lack, it's sacrifice. It's faith. It's trust. It's hope. And it's a belief in a God that has already been generous with you and will continue to be as well. Let's bow our heads today. God of grace, even that word grace speaks of your generosity and hope the generous hope of a future that you've given us and compassion, the way that you've knelt down to be with us and we should kneel down to be with others. Mercy, the way you haven't given us what we've deserved but created a way for us to be saved and live beyond the sin that we create. Lord, everything that we say about you is about your generosity towards us, so form our hearts. Shape them with this valve that just spills open and allows all these things that you've given us to flow out of us into the other people in this world. Lord, we call it love well. It doesn't matter what name we call it, it is you. So let us live in that generosity so that this generous life that we lead is a life that leads others to you. Pray this in your name, the name of Jesus, the most incredible generosity that you ever gave us. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.